Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. Whilst a lot of attention is rightly being focused on the climate change COP in Glasgow in November, there's another global COP meeting on biodiversity being held in China in October. What are the implications of that COP for the UK? How does it link with the green recovery and with climate change itself? And what is the role of business in all of this to protect biodiversity? With me to discuss these issues is Dr. Stephanie Ray, Director of Nature Positive and a former president of the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management. Dr. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Just to start us off, what is the Global Biodiversity COP trying to achieve and, and why is it needed? Well, the, the Convention for Biological Diversity started back in 1992 at the Rio Convention, and that's really when the term biodiversity started to be used in a policy context. And since then, the parties have met regularly and developed a series of targets. The most recent was the HG targets, none of which have been fully met. Now, we're all aware of the massive decline in biodiversity, and you can read any number of reports about it, the Living Planet Report by the WWF and the IBPS, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. And, and they'll tell you the statistics, like there's been a 68% fall in the monitored populations of most species. But you don't even need to read those reports to know how urgent this is and why it's needed. If, you, if you're old enough like me to remember 20 or 30 years ago, Go for a drive of 50 miles or so today in your car and you probably won't need to clean your windshield afterwards. And 20 years ago, you would have had all manner of bugs splattered across it. There simply aren't as many insects in the air as there were 20 years ago. And that means not as many birds and mammals that eat them. It means some of the processes of decomposition and nutrient cycling won't work as well. So we're not restoring our soils as well. And because everything alive, all of our life on earth is connected by complex food webs, we're risking a collapse of the whole system. So, so COP15 in China this year seeks to address that. It's, it's no more or no less than how do we save the world? Well, that's uh, fairly ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> so assuming the COP then does reach some ambitious targets in biodiversity, what does that mean in terms of implementation here in the UK? Yeah, the, the aims of the COP are certainly very strong. And the, the vision for, for this meeting is, is to come up with a draft for a, a world living in harmony and to come up with a living in harmony with nature. So there's, there's a kind of a theory of change about how do we get from where we are now to, to being a society that fully values and, and, and respects nature and lives in harmony with it. And there's a huge amount of debate still going on around the draft of the post-2020 global biodiversity framework and how strong those targets will be. But essentially, I suppose the thrust is we need to halt and reverse biodiversity loss by 2030 and allow for a recovery of natural ecosystems in the following 20 years, so to 2050. Now, obviously, we're, we're a year delayed in having this meeting because of the global pandemic. So we're starting on this path late already. And the target to reverse biodiversity loss in eight years is, is a stretch. The mistake that people tend to make in thinking about this is thinking that this is a wildlife policy. This is a special biodiversity issue that's of interest only to specialists and it'll be monitored by wildlife experts. 
it, it's not, it's a huge cross-cutting initiative. So yes, we do need to do things like increase protected areas and, and strengthen the protection for biodiversity. And, and I mean, all of biodiversity, not just specially protected species, but it's much wider than that. It's around rethinking our patterns of production and consumption, thinking about what commodities we import and, and, and where we import them from, how we grow our food and manage our fisheries and, and the need to eliminate harmful subsidies that promote bad practice or create perverse incentives in, in the food or energy sector. So there's a massive amount to do that could be coming out of this COP. You've talked about a whole range of different things there. How many of those things are the UK in a good position to deliver compared with other countries? I mean, is this an area where we, we're already on the right track and we, we know where we're doing? Are there other countries that are uh, leading the way in some of these things? What, what's the kind of international position? It depends on how you look at it, I suppose. It's a bit of a curate take. In policy terms, we do quite well. You know, we have a government that's committed to leaving the environment in a better state than they inherited it. We have a 25-year environment plan, which has got some strong objectives in it. Less evidence at this stage of, of delivery in that. And we've, we've translated some really strong environmental protection laws across from EU law into domestic legislation. One of the things, I suppose, the thing that gives me most confidence and, and makes me feel good about this at the moment is the Das Gupta review earlier this year. You know, which for me is is huge. The sort of the the Gupta review on the economics of biodiversity sets out clearly the way that nature's been consistently undervalued or ignored altogether as an externality to economic activity, and and it really explains how all of our economies and livelihoods and indeed our well-being all depend on how how well we look after nature and that we failed to do so consistently over generations which is which is endangering future generations now to someone working in my field there's probably nothing entirely new or surprising in that review and you know as I've mentioned there's lots of reports you can read about this but I think the importance of the Gupta review that makes me think that it's putting the UK in a really strong position to deal with this is this isn't written by an NGO or a, a special interest this is written by one of the world's most respected economists and commissioned by Her Majesty's Treasury. It's not a fringe interest. This is the establishment recognising the need for transformative change. I think that the stage is really set for the UK to be world leaders in this. And it's up to us to prove that we can do it through the delivery stage. And how have you seen the Descupta Review landing uh, in policy terms, both sort of here in the UK and elsewhere? Do you see people sitting up and really taking notice of it? I think, I think it, it has had a huge impact. It's had a, a strong impact among people already with an interest in sustainability. I haven't, haven't seen there was sort of a very obvious response yet from the Treasury or from Number 10, although it was impressive that the 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 document itself was actually launched by number 10, which is, which is hugely important to say where we're putting it on the agenda. And, and I suppose my optimism about it's tempered slightly through some of the other government initiatives that are being promoted at, at the moment. So we've got the planning review, which is seek, seeking to simplify planning so that, you know, there'll be some areas that are protected and some areas you can just build, build, build. 
well, that might work all right if we've got great research and we know the locations of everything that needs to be protected and we fund its protection properly. We've got the uh, latest quinquennial review of the Wildlife and Countryside Act coming out very shortly, which seeks to limit the criteria for species that need protection by saying you can only you can only list a species for special protection if it's already endangered or critically endangered. Well, a reasonable person might think that it's already too late at that point. So there's, there's elements that are telling me the rhetoric's right, but we're not seeing that really follow through in policy. You know, the policy is still driven by the economy and all protection of nature is tested against the economic case. But as we've seen, it's a very flawed economic case because it doesn't value nature's worth to society. And if you distort the economy in that way, then you invest too much in manufactured capital and you don't invest in natural assets. And then you have a situation as we've had for many years where governments pay subsidies to people to exploit nature and prioritize unsustainable activities over the restoration of nature. And that's really the big paradigm shift that we need to see within the next eight years. And presumably that's a shift that needs to happen internationally rather than just the UK. One country alone sort of valuing nature into its economic system isn't going to be enough. It has to be something that's globally accepted. Absolutely. It needs it needs huge global and international cooperation. And, and I think there are, you know, we talk about the sort of interrelated crises of climate change and, and biodiversity loss. But there's really a third, isn't there, which is sort of inequality and, and social injustice. And, and, you know, we can't think about these two things in isolation in our, our very Western perspective. We need to think about the implications of our decisions of, of consumption patterns on, on people in developing countries whose livelihoods depend on them. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the term that's often bandied around at the moment, green recovery. And this is obviously uh, recovery following the economic shocks from the coronavirus pandemic. Generally, when people say green recovery, they, they mean reducing climate change emissions, I guess. But to what extent can the biodiversity protection that you've been talking about be wrapped into a kind of a, a UK and, and international policy on green recovery? I think the two go hand in hand. I think it's really hard to think about climate change without thinking about biodiversity as well and lots of the other dimensions of sustainability we, we tend to try to simplify things don't we but we forget about how interconnected the world is at our peril in my view um, I always like to use that that ancient Indian story about the blind men who were introduced to an elephant and each each touches a part of the elephant and decides oh it, it's a wall or it's a tree or it's a hose depending on which part of it they touched its side or its leg or its trunk and you know they all believe that they they're right in what they've seen and and don't believe the others are, are telling the truth but none of them have got the information they needed to understand what makes up a whole elephant and and when it when we pick off individual dimensions of sustainability we can't tackle them in a meaningful way we're, we're touching part of the elephant and we need to take a step back and see the whole picture when we do that you can see that you can pump all the recovery cash you like into sequestering carbon. But if you ignore biodiversity when you do that by focusing only on technological solutions rather than nature-based solutions, for example, or even if you're using nature-based solutions, if you're planting monocultures of non-native trees, 
then we won't actually be dealing with these two crises of climate change and biodiversity loss, which are inextricably linked. So what in all of this would you say the role of business is? Because obviously we talk a lot about policy and there's, there's a feeling, I guess, in, in some quarters that business are the problem or that uh, it's not in business interest to do some of these things. What is the role of, of business in, in supporting biodiversity and what's holding them back from doing it? There is a huge role for business, obviously. I don't, I don't hold with the kind of business blaming and thinking it's all to do with them because business works inside our overall economic system and the, the boundaries of, of, of policy and legislation that government sets. And so we can't necessarily blame business for doing what business does. And there's a role also for, for us all as consumers who can vote with our wallets about which business businesses we want to support. I think there is clearly stricter policy and legislation about natural capital and biodiversity coming down the line. And, and you know, smart businesses are already trying to get ahead of that curve. I talk to so many companies who think that biodiversity is a, is a specialist area that ecologists like me deal with, but the business impacts of biodiversity aren't around, you know, <laughs> bats in the loft of your office or badges around the grounds of your factory it's about your whole value chain and it's getting businesses to think more about where their raw materials come from and how they're processed and how they get to them so not just the very obvious commodities that have potential for embedded deforestation like soy and palm oil and timber but some of the less obvious ones you know rare earth metals used in your wind turbines or how the high water demand of your operations is affecting local natural habitats in the, in the vicinity of your factory. So there's kind of that end of the value chain as to where your raw materials come from. And then there's right out to the other end of your value chain. What do your customers do with your products and how do they dispose of them? Now, we've seen a lot of action there, haven't we, on single-use plastics, you know, and we're starting to see change on waste electronics and people demanding quite rightly that products should be durable and repairable rather than just seen as as having a natural built-in obsolescence so you know waste disposal isn't just about carbon that's a biodiversity issue too it's new for a lot of businesses but but smart businesses you know can see how policy is shifting and these are real business risks it's you know this is a risk to reputation nobody wants to be on the wrong side of the next palm oil issue for example you know that might be an issue about whether a resource is actually available to you in the future if you're over-exploiting it and others in your industry are over-exploiting it. And of course, investors are getting more and more savvy about, about these kinds of issues and looking at, at ESG policies in more detail. So it may become harder to attract investment into your business if you're not on top of these issues. And I think that's really only going to increase in future. And to what extent, I mean, you talked about Business can see certain things coming down the track in terms of regulation. What are the kind of regulations that could come about in this area? You can, you can, you can see that there's, there's definitely things that business wants to do anyway in terms of ensuring their supply chains, making themselves more uh, environmentally responsible, whatever. But what, what are the kind of regulations that government might be introducing over the, the next period that will help nudge some of these things along? Well, if we look in the UK to begin with, I mean, we've, we've already got the requirements for developments under the Town and Country Planning Act 
to deliver biodiversity net gain. That's um, that's been been there in a, in a fairly weak form in the national planning policy framework for a while now, but it's going to be mandatory when the Environment Act is published later this year. And that's going to ask developers to to essentially to to leave biodiversity in a better state after their development than before it by a factor of 10 percent and and that's you know a starting point that's development land development land's quite a small proportion of our, our land area in reality but you can see the potential for that kind of a policy to be rolled out into other areas of how society interacts with the natural world and we've also we, we also have heard of plans to extend that on from being not just about biodiversity net gain, but building on that to give environmental net gain and looking across other factors around, around water resources and climate and food production and human engagement with nature to get a, a more broad picture of, of what our impacts are and how we're, we're giving back each time more than we take. Across the EU, there's, there's work underfoot to look at how to align business and biodiversity better and the development of, of generally accepted accounting principles for financial reporting. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that over the next five years, we'll see impacts on biodiversity or natural capital coming into corporate financial reports, the way uh, we've seen corporate reporting on climate change and carbon. So it's not just about spending and, and, and doing more. Sometimes it's about rethinking what we do and doing less you know and it's a very simple example you know if you are, if you own a lot of land if you have lots of factories or offices all over the country and you spend a lot of time and money cutting the grass and making them look tidy you've got a very quick win and a money saving in just not cutting the grass and leaving areas wild for biodiversity leave it to the birds and the insects so it's sitting back and thinking about what are the simple contributions that business can make as well that's really interesting. At the start of, uh, of this discussion, you mentioned the target of halting biodiversity loss by 2030. So talk me through, just to conclude, what some of that might look like. So assuming we have a positive COP in October, what happens in the UK over the next sort of three years in order to be on target for that, that sort of first milestone uh, by 2030? Okay, I think we need strong policy on environmental protection, you know, moving things on and improving. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, about red tape and repealing laws. And, and, you know, that's fine as long as we replace with better, as long as we have, you know, streamlined and easy to implement laws that show how we're going to make this work. I think increasing protected areas is huge. We need bigger, better, more joined up and properly protected areas of the countryside that where, you know, nature, nature sort of takes the tiller, if you like, you know, rewilding, letting nature take the lead, rather than imposing our view of how that land should be managed. I think understanding the diff those different relationships, that bet the interrelationships between those different dimensions of sustainability and working with that complexity. We've had a tendency in the past, I think, to focus just on carbon and not necessarily to think about, about water and waste and biodiversity and all of those other elements that are important and the social aspects. And I think making sure that, that we do have this sort of wider discussion. 
I think the areas we've talked about, about around implementing corporate reporting on natural capital will be hugely important because that will drive the message down through business who have, you know, a huge, a huge responsibility, but also, you know, great innovation and entrepreneurial power to actually make some of these changes. So I think I think those for me will do as a as a key start of, of how we get moving on this. Well, fantastic. Well, let's see how the COP goes in October and then how the, the UK develops over the coming years. But that's all we've got time for today. But uh, Dr. Stephanie Ray, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Stephanie Ray, Director of Nature Positive and former President of the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management. The topic of biodiversity is the subject of an event being run by the Foundation on the 24th of May, at which Dr. Ray is also a speaker. Details of that webinar, which is free to attend, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of all our other events, all our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, we'll be discussing regional policy and R&D. And until then, goodbye.